This is the Daily Texan Newscast. I'm Anthony Green. And I'm Lillian Michel. Super Tuesday is in the books as far as this election cycle goes, but there's plenty of discussion to be had. Also, we'll talk about the latest tech giant building space on campus, as well as tuition increases for you and me. We're jamming to the 1975's latest album. Stay tuned to find out whether we enjoyed that jam session. It is Friday, March 4th, 2016. Rick Perry turned 65 today. And the news is next. From the Daily Texan Newsroom, here's what you might have missed. Voting for student government elections closed at 5 p.m. on Thursday, and the election results were supposed to be announced at 6, but things did not go as planned. The election supervisory board did not announce the results until nearly 9 o'clock at night, and, most notably, because of pending results in a number of disputes in the Executive Alliance race, the ESB did not announce who will be the next student body president and vice president. The winners of the other positions were announced, including the election of Alexander Chase as editor-in-chief of the Daily Texan for the 2016-2017 school year. As for Executive Alliance, at the time of recording, it is still not known when the results will be announced. Results for the Graduate Student Assembly will be embargoed until the appeals process is complete by the Sahil Bandari and Michael Scott campaign. Earlier this week, the University Election Supervisory Board, or ESB, which supervises all campus-wide elections, disqualified the Bandari-Scott campaign from the GSA election after GSA President Brian Wilkie filed a complaint. His complaint stated the February 26th Longhorn Cattle Call was misrepresented as an event hosted by the Graduate Students Assembly's Legislative Affairs Committee and the UT Graduate Students Against Campus Carry, a group that has endorsed Bundari and Scott. In actuality, GSA did not partner with the latter organization. Following the disqualification, Bundari submitted an appeal for the Election Oversight Board, which is GSA's appellate court, to hear this case. Vance Roper, vice president of GSA, said the organization will hold a special session on Friday at 2.30, where voting members will approve the three-member board. The required two-thirds approval is needed to move forward in the process. Without the minimum of approval to convene an election oversight board, results could get postponed until next week. The UT System Board of Regents voted on Monday to raise tuition at UT Austin by 3.1% for the 2016-2017 academic year, and by another 3% for the 2017-2018 year. This is the first tuition increase after four years of flat tuition rates at the school. Tuition was last raised by 4% for the 2011-2012 academic year. The increase will cost students approximately $300 more each semester by fall 2017, although the exact cost will vary for in-state and out-of-state students and between colleges. Chancellor William McRaven defended the increase as necessary for staying competitive with comparably respected universities. UT President Gregory Fenves said in a letter released to the UT community Monday that the tuition increase would help UT remain a quality university. UT student body president Xavier Rotnovsky said he, quote, begrudgingly supported the tuition increase to prevent programs from being cut, but he said the Texas legislature needs to increase state funding to public universities. Gina Hinojosa was elected as representative for Texas House District 49, which encompasses UT and West Campus, with a 58% vote Tuesday night. The trustee and former president of the Austin Independent School District Board will replace incumbent Elliot Neistat, who is retiring because of health reasons. Hinojosa said she will focus on reforming the education and transportation systems and protecting the environment in Austin. Hinojosa supporters gathered at Schultz Beer Garden to watch the election night results. Neistat, who attended to watch the party, chose to remain neutral throughout the race. Still, Neistat said he is happy with the outcome and hopes his successor will follow in his footsteps. Hinojosa, who graduated from UT with a Plan 2 and Government degree, 
believes public universities should have the same right as private universities to opt out of campus carry. Hinojosa said she hopes to be appointed to the Public Education Committee to increase representation from Central Texas Democrats. Hinojosa also said that she would like to be part of the Texas House State Affairs Committee. Two men in West Campus were arrested on February 20th for allegedly throwing bottles and yelling derogatory racial slurs at a black UT student who was walking by the suspect's apartment. The incident occurred between Leon and West 25th Streets. The suspects, Tucker Sauer and Lucas Henderson, were charged with public intoxication and deadly conduct. Police were unable to locate a third suspect. According to online jail records, they were released from Travis County Jail on February 24th on bond. Instances of racism resulting in violence are not new to West Campus. In 2012 and 2013, multiple reports of white students targeting minority students with bleach-filled balloons were filed. This past November, a Muslim UT student reported being spat on. The student was wearing a Muslim Students Association shirt when a man pulled the headphones out of his ears and spat in his face three times as he walked down Guadalupe Street. The newly constructed Moody Sky Bridge connecting the Below Center for New Media to the Jesse H. Jones Communication Center will not likely open until after spring break because of needed finishing touches. This despite a projected February 26th opening date. Director of Austin Region for the UT System Office of Facilities and Planning and Construction, Bob Rowski, said unfinished work on the bridge's northern interest in the Below Center for New Media and an inspection showing several places on the bridge that needed paint touch-ups will delay the opening. Potentially adding to the delay is a plan to add a protective coating to the surface that was initially tabled for budgetary reasons, but is being reconsidered because of savings during the construction, this again according to Rowski. The coating would give pedestrians better traction when walking on the bridge during wet conditions and extend the lifespan of the bridge's surface. Four UT professors won $55,000 each as part of a fellowship to further their research in engineering and natural sciences. The Alfred P. Sloan Foundation announced the professors as fellowship recipients last month, along with 122 other winners from research universities in the United States and Canada. Two winners were associate professors in the College of Natural Sciences, Brett Baker and Jeffrey Danziger. Baker uses DNA methods to research how life on Earth evolved. He studies marine microorganisms and their roles in the ecology of our oceans and estuaries. Danzinger said he hopes his work will contribute to a deeper understanding of fundamental questions in geometry. Two other winners were Associate Professor Delia Millerin and Assistant Professor Gui Hua Yu from the Cockrell School of Engineering. Millerin's research in chemical engineering is used in creating smart windows that control the light and heat coming through the glass on demand. Yu's work aims to create synthetic methods for low-cost, high-performance, nanostructured materials like lithium batteries and electrochemical capacitors. Amazon said Wednesday it will open a package pickup center inside Gregory Gymnasium at UT this summer for UT students, faculty, and staff. Amazon has opened five of these physical locations since the first one was built at Purdue University in 2015, and it has announced two more slated for construction this year, one at the University of Pennsylvania and the other at the University of California, Davis. This will be the first package pickup center in Texas for Amazon. The tower was lit orange on Wednesday to celebrate Texas Independence Day. March 2nd marked 180 years since the adoption of the Texas Declaration of Independence in 1836. The state declaration was written literally overnight. A convention was held on March 1st, where a committee of five men, including George Childress, the primary author, was appointed to write the document. It was adopted on March 2nd and signed by 60 men formally proclaiming Texas a republic independent from Mexico. Five formal copies of the declaration were made, of which only one remains, 
It was found at the U.S. State Department in 1896 and is kept at the Texas State Archives here in Austin. Texas joined the United States in 1845 as the 28th state. And out Akshay Merchandani with the Daily Texan Sports Update. Thanks, Anthony. Lots of hoops, baseball, and softball today. It's Big 12 tournament time for the women's basketball team, but the Longhorns ended their regular season on a down note, losing to Baylor 74-48 and unable to clinch at least a share of the Big 12 title. Still, Texas earned the number two seed in the conference tournament this weekend. The Longhorns will play either TCU or Kansas on on Friday in the quarterfinals. They beat both of those teams in the regular season twice. The men's basketball team play their regular season finale on Friday on the road against Oklahoma State at 8 p.m. Texas lost its senior night on Monday, getting run off their home floor 86-56 to the number one Kansas Jayhawks. Senior guard Javon Felix was the only bright spot for Texas with 13 points. After Oklahoma State, the Longhorns will begin Big 12 tournament play next week. Their seeding, though, is still unclear. The baseball team plays a home series with California this weekend. The Longhorns are coming off a road loss to Texas State where they lost 10-4 in extra innings. Texas plays Cal at 6 p.m. on Friday, 2 p.m. on Saturday, and noon on Sunday. And finally, the baseball team also lost to Texas State on the road, dropping the contest 9-5 in San Marcos. The 14-3 Longhorns don't play again until March 8th when they host UTSA at 4.30 p.m. That's it for sports. Back to you guys. Thanks, Akshay. Millions of Americans voted on Super Tuesday in 13 states across the country. We have associate editor and future editor-in-chief of The Daily Texan, Alexander Chase, here to talk with us about the results. Alex, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Always glad to be on the podcast. Okay, so which candidates won what states? All right. So slew of states we have to go through here today. Um, On the Republican side, Trump took Vermont, Massachusetts, Virginia, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, and Arkansas in a decisive show of force, especially in some southern evangelical states. Our state senator, Ted Cruz, took Texas, Oklahoma, and Alaska. And Marco Rubio, perhaps surprisingly, took Minnesota. On the Democratic side, Massachusetts, Virginia, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Arkansas, and Texas went to former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And Bernie Sanders, Senator from Vermont, took his home state in addition to Minnesota, Colorado, and Oklahoma. Um, it was uh, closer than expected in a few places and not at all close in others. Some really interesting results to pair through. So let's zero in on Texas for a second. Um, Cruz and Clinton were the big winners uh, on Tuesday. Was this expected? Well, we knew going into the Republican primary that Cruz was probably going to win. There were polls that showed him leading from anywhere between about one to 10 points. So his margin of victory was certainly a little bit larger than we expected. He ended up taking 43% of the vote to Trump's only 26%. So Cruz definitely outperformed expectations, but this was a bit of a low modern mark for a Texas senator running in Texas. So while it does look decisive for him, this isn't necessarily as much of a good indicator as those who'd spin things in his direction would put off. So on the Democratic side, the candidates were really trying to rally support in Texas. Bernie Sanders was out here. Bill Clinton was out here. Who did that pay off for the most? And then can you also talk about the difference in voter turnout between the Democrats and the Republicans in this primary? Well, I think 
knowing how the state has gone in past years, it should not be unexpected that Republicans had a much higher turnout. Uh, well, well over a million votes, um, 1,200,000 or so, um, whereas uh, Clinton took just shy of a million, whereas she had 65% of the total vote, uh, Cruz only having 45 Democratic turnout was much lower than Republican turnout, as we'd expect. When we bring up Bernie Sanders in this case, uh, lots of individuals around the country love to point to his rallies and the number of individuals that turn out to support him as indicators of how successful he is. And there was about 10,000 of those supporters in Austin last weekend. Yes. um, Well, those are definitely a good show of diehard supporters. It is necessary to know that those 10,000 voters, if we assume they all voted... Um, we're only a small fraction of the 475,000 votes he got. Most of voters who are going to turn out to these uh, rallies are important. There are plenty more who are content to stay at home until Election Day, and Clinton certainly had her fair share of those. She took 65% of the vote here. In Travis County, even, which is one of the more liberal counties in Texas, Sanders only took 52% of the vote. Well, it's nice to look at these rallies as an indicator of strong support, it's really important not to get too wrapped up in them as showing the bigger picture. So with vote, so with votes tallied in seventeen states so far, it's about a third. Uh, is it clear at this point who the nom- nominations will be on the Democratic and Republican sides? And well, if not, what can be done? Well, the odds makers certainly think it is pretty clear at this point that both Trump and Clinton are going to be the nominees. Obviously, there's still some bumps in the road left for us to see. Um, the margins of victory along with the general demographics of a lot of these votes have remained pretty consistent, so it shouldn't be too hard to predict how the rest of the road should go. Though Clinton only won one guaranteed Democratic state, if you will, Massachusetts, it does look like she's going to do rather well. It's important to know that Democratic voters in Republican states still have a voice that matters, and vice versa for Republicans in Democratic states. So having done well where she's done and looking at the rest of the electoral map, it looks very likely that she'll carry the nomination. As for, as for, as for Trump, he, he's fending off several opponents still. Well, Cruz had a good day and didn't trail him by that many delegates when the dust cleared. The rest of the map doesn't look that favorable to him. And Rubio may be able to play some catch up. With Trump maintaining his current pace, it looks like neither of them will have a strong chance to catch him. The question is whether or not he'll clear the 50% mark or the Cleveland Convention. If he doesn't, all bets are off for this year and those to come. But without a major shakeup in who's running in the Republican primary, it doesn't look like either Cruz or Rubio will be able to win the nomination outright. And uh, I'd like to just take a moment to remind us all that John Kasich is running. So, And Ben Carson has only like half dropped out. He is not... He said there's no way going forward, but it wasn't totally formal. Well, like so much of the campaign that he's run, things are a bit unclear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Though one will assume, as they should have for months now, that he doesn't have any shot. He picked up a couple delegates on Super Tuesday. And, and, well, any statisticians out there will tell you his chances are hovering around zero. There's still a chance to donate, I hear. So if that's something you're into, it's such an interesting quirk that... He half dropped and it's not it's not yet technically over. Yep. All right. Thank you, Alex. No problem at all. And now to Chris Duncan and Cat Cardenas with the Daily Texan backbeat. Thanks, Anthony. 
This week we're going to be covering the 1975 sophomore album called I Like It When You Sleep, For You Are So Beautiful Yet So Unaware of It. Uh, Quite a long title, but also quite a long album. We're going to get into a few songs here. The first one is called Love Me. This is, I think, the second song on the album, if I'm not mistaken. And basically, when I first heard it, I I was kind of turned off by the whole thing. I thought the whole album was going to sound like this. It sounds a lot like one of the other songs on the album, uh, She's American, which is to say that it sounds like they're hopped up on cocaine. Mm-hmm. And it's just a little bit too over the top. Totally, for me. it's it's definitely an over the top pop song. You're right in saying it's the second track. The first track is a really ambient kind of prelude. It's just called the 1975. I don't know why it's there, but it's a very <laughs> 1975 thing to do to yeah have an ambient prelude. To yeah, the album. it's initially when I heard it, I thought, well, this album's gonna kind of suck. But you know, coming back on it, looking back on the track, it was it was a fun a fun listen you know it might not have the the content to it but it does have an interesting message about lead singer matt healy's you know struggle with relationships and how instead of you know in the, in the traditional pop song he isn't really describing their love but it the his lust and desire really comes out in his lyrics which i found to be pretty interesting yeah it was definitely overall a really fun song to listen to there just wasn't a lot of I, I don't really think that the style of the song lent a lot to the lyrical substance of it. It didn't really do much for it. But thankfully, the rest of, or there are a few songs on the album that aren't like Love Me. One of them, I think, is a step in the right direction, and that is their song, Ugh. Check it out. This song is especially even more poppy, in my opinion, than Love Me. But the content of the song does really drive home. And, you know, Matt Healy's vocal performance on this song is actually really good. And I guess in the end, the, you know, the jangly guitar sound, you know, the pretty common riffs, it it does become kind of catchy after a while. Not my favorite song, but I definitely don't think it's absolutely horrible. I think you're being a little bit dramatic, for one, because I didn't think it was that I don't I don't think it was anywhere near as popish as some of the other songs that are on this album. And I thought, like I said earlier, that it was definitely a step in the right direction. I thought it was where the rest of the album should have gone and could have gone. Mm-hmm. Towards that, the more blatantly poppy kind of influences instead of yeah. incorporating all of the other influences they do in later songs? Yeah. Okay. Well, this, this next song we're going to talk about called Loving Someone is definitely one of those songs where they kind of rip off of another artist and really start incorporating other influences in their music. This song was probably the best song on the entire album. I really enjoyed it, and I think it improved a lot on the kind of direction that they were going with Ugh. Generally, I just thought that this was a really good song, and I'm kind of disappointed that they didn't explore this sound more on the rest of the album. Mm-hmm. This is definitely an example of where they're 
blatantly ripping off an artist like M83 or, you know, a lot of those more ambient pop artists. And although they are ripping them off, I agree with you. This is definitely the best song. It definitely has a very clear artistic direction. The lyrics are very, you know, deep. The song definitely mirrors Love Me. It's a much more moody version, a much deeper version, and, you know, kind of a flip side of looking at things. But I definitely think the overall experience of the song was definitely one of the best, if not the best, of the album. I mean, overall, I don't think that it's such a, like, as blatant of a ripoff as you're saying, because what does every musician in the history of the world do other than, like, at some point, rip off, quote-unquote, another yeah, artist? good point. There, it's hard to be original nowadays, and I think the 1975 does a really good of putting their own small spin on pop music. Yeah, definitely. They're definitely going down the realm of experimental pop, kind of like uh, FK Twigs and Charlie XCX, groups like that, or artists like that. I definitely think this album was an improvement over their first album. For sure. Uh, you can definitely see the signs of maturity. Their first album was a lot of like teen angst and because it was written at the time of them being teenagers. But now, you know, fast forward several years uh, from when they originally wrote a lot of those songs. They've definitely matured a lot and you can hear it in their music. And that's it from us. Thanks as always. Now it's time for Quick Flicks. We have our movie reviewer, Charles Liu, to talk about Disney's Zootopia. Charles, what'd you think? All right, thanks, Lillian. Zootopia is Disney's latest animated movie, set in a city populated by talking animals. Predators and prey coexist in the metropolis, but their history of antagonism leaves their modern interactions filled with tension. Rookie rabbit cop Judy Hopps needs to overcome her prejudice against her natural enemies, foxes, when she enlists the help of Nick Wilde, the con artist Fox, in an effort to take to track down a missing otter. Zootopia offers hilarious jokes that beyond the now famous slot scene and its animation is rich, creative, and impressively detailed. Zootopia is also heartwarming and relevant. It's a surprising yet fantastic film that addresses the issue of racism, delivering a message about acceptance and equality that kids will easily understand. Zootopia gets 4.5 stars out of 5. Wow, okay, thank you. And that about does it for this week's edition of the Daily Texan Newscast. In the meantime, there is always more stories at Daily Texan Online. You can also follow The Daily Texan on Twitter at The Daily Texan and the newscast and our other podcasts at Texan Podcast. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, guys. Just search for The Daily Texan Newscast. We'll see you next week, everybody. Have a great weekend. This podcast was produced by The Daily Texan. Anchors were Anthony Green and Lillian Michel. Guests were... Akshay Merchandani, Alexander Chase, Kat Cardenas, Chris Duncan, and Charles Liu. The music was by Dejar. Be sure to tune in next week, Friday, March 11th, for our next episode, and you can always find more news at DailyTexanOnline.com.